I'm trusting that my voice will hold out. Um, I, if I have time, I'm going to share with you an experience I had the last three months. But uh, I want to get into the scripture first. And this is about uh, study of chapter 4 of Daniel. What's the matter? Oh, thank you. <clears throat> we need to pray. Gracious Father, thank you so much for your goodness toward us. We invite you to be with us by your spirit, to guide and direct, for strength, for wisdom. And may your power, your love permeate our hearts and minds. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Nebuchadnezzar was a great man in the, from the standpoint of the world. He was a great builder. He built up Babylon. Babylon had been in existence for centuries, but he actually built a beautiful city out of it. He put a moat outside, put a big wall surrounding everything. They used to have chariot races on top of the walls. It was so wide. It could not be captured. You know that it was the Persians that went under the ground. And they drained the water Euphrates out and they got in that way. But they could not take it uh, by siege. And uh, by chapter 4, he was the king of the world, at least from Egypt on north of Assyria up to the Caspian Sea, the Black Sea up into that area. And uh, he ruled with an iron hand, and uh, he did not believe in liberty of conscience. And we'll look at that a little bit uh, later on. But chapter 4 is his uh, conversion experience. This is a public document that he authored and sent it to the then known world. And uh, so we'll get into that, the uh, justification by faith in chapter 4. This is kind of an outline of that in uh, the first three verses. And I think we'll go ahead and read that. The first three verses of, of uh, Daniel 4, he's singing praises to God. And he closes the chapter the same way of the letter. He says, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell on the earth, peace be multiplied to you. This sounds almost like Paul when he was writing his letters. <laughs> and he says, I thought it good to declare the signs and wonders that the Most High God has worked for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion is from generation to generation. This is one of the great lessons that he had to learn. And if we drop down the last verse or so of this chapter, you have verse, verse seven, 37. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, all of whose works are of truth, his ways of justice, those who walk in pride he is able to abase. And that was speaking of his own uh, experience. So in this, you have uh, opening and closing praises to God. Verses 4 through 18, you have the experience of the dream that he had of a tree that was chopped down and then a stump was left. They put a, an iron and bronze band on it so that it wouldn't uh, deteriorate, evidently. It wouldn't get away. And he called in the wise men. Now these are the, some of the same men that he called in in chapter 2. Chapter 2, 
uh, they were befuddled by what he said about the dream. They had no idea what he was talking about. So they said, you tell us what you saw, what you dreamt, and we'll tell you the meaning of it. And he began to understand that these people were not as wise as they claimed. Now they did have communication with, with the devil. Some of them were astrologers, some were spiritualists. Most of them were spiritualists. But they could not penetrate what God had given to Nebuchadnezzar in that dream. And so the next thing that the tyrant said, off with your heads. Everybody, all the wise men are going to die, including Daniel. And they came for Daniel, and Daniel said, why in the world, are, why is he so hasty? Give me the audience, an audience with the king, and, and then we'll see what can be, can be done. So he went in before the king, and he said, give me some time. God will help us. He'll reveal it. And so he and the three Hebrews, other uh, Hebrews, went and prayed, and uh, the Lord gave him the dream and the interpretation. So he went back and told the king what it was, and he was excited. And we'll look at that a little bit later. But, but this chapter, he, he told the wise men what he saw. He saw this tree, but he could not, he didn't know what it was. So he asked them, they said, well, it's beyond us. We don't know what it is either. Then he remembered Daniel. And the first thing he said to him, he said, uh, the, the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, of God dwells in you, and you're able to tell me this. So um, he, uh, he did. And Daniel was alarmed when he saw what was happening and the interpretation that God gave him. And Nebuchadnezzar was a man who studied people, and he could almost read the thoughts of, of people. He knew when people were angry, he knew when they were troubled and they were afraid. And Daniel was probably on the verge of fear. And he says, do not worry, Daniel. Tell me what, what this is about. Your God is able to do this. So Daniel told him, and he said, may this dream be, be for others, your enemies. Then he told him what was going to happen. And uh, Nebuchadnezzar listened, and uh, he said, your, your kingdom is, is going to be lost, but it will be restored. The last part of the chapter t tells that. And as he interpreted, he said, you're going to be, you're going to grow about seven years of insanity. And... Uh, then in verse 28, there was a call to repentance. Had he repented from the heart, the rest of the chapter probably would not have happened. God would have spared him from going insane. And I think God kept him from that for many years. And, uh, and he, but he finally did. Now, uh, when we repent and accept by faith what Christ has done for us, God treats us as though we had never sinned. Tremendous. That's because of justification. Here's some steps to Christ. If you give yourself to him and accept him as your savior, then sinful as your life may have been, for his sake you are counted righteous. Christ's character stands in place of your character and you are accepted before God. And notice the rest of the sentence. Just as if you had not sinned. That good news or bad? So I've got this... Uh, put together years ago for justification. It helps some people know what uh, justif to be justified means. Just as if I'd always believed. Just as if I'd always obeyed. Just as if I'd never sinned. That's how God looks at us when we come to him. We've accepted Christ. And, uh, and God does not dig up our, dig up our past. He, he, never brings it, he never brings it up. I uh, use sometimes an example of uh, Dan, 
uh, David and, and uh, Abraham. They're the two main two people in the New Testament that are used uh, as illustrations of justification. And as bad as they were, both were adulterers, both were liars. David was a murderer. When God forgave them, when they had truly repented, you'll never see anywhere in the Bible where God ever brought up anything to them. He looked at them as though he had never sinned. Absolutely amazing. I, I can't understand it, but I do believe it. Uh, so in Daniel, uh, Daniel or Nebuchadnezzar went through this experience. Now let's consider steps in conversion for him. Chapter 1, he was impressed by several things. Now remember, these guys were teenage boys. They're, they're called children, so they're in their mid-teens. They refused the king's diet, and they, they were not belligerent. They said, give us 10 days on a uh, plant-based diet, and which his uh, overseer was frightened. He said, well, it'd be off, off my head if you get sick. And they said, you know, the Lord will be with us. Don't worry about it. Ten days later, they were fitness of health. They looked better than the other people uh, in, the, in the school, the university. Then uh, Nebuchadnezzar was, a, was an educator as well as a military general, and he was a religious leader. But here he, in fact, chapter one, we see him changing the names of these Hebrew teenagers to the gods that he was serving. It was a subtle move, but he was thinking that if they associated with his dog, gods, they would finally accept them. But it never happened. But he called them in at the end of three years, gave them an oral examination. He found them. Do you remember how, many, how much wiser they were than all the rest? Ten times. Ten times wiser than all the wiser. And I believe this included, his, included their teachers. Maybe not Nebuchadnezzar, but even his, their teachers. I, I knew one man when I was going to college. He was at the university, not, not here, but another place. And he was brilliant. He was a, uh, into science, very strongly. And he, had mo he knew more than his teachers, and they knew it, but they accepted him. It was amazing to see. He was a Seventh-day Adventist, and they, they liked what they heard and uh, passed him. <laughs> but anyhow, then chapter 2... You have that dream of the, of the great image for the four uh, nations. And Nebuchadnezzar was convinced. In fact, let's take a look at, uh, at chapter 2. I want to go to the, the end of each chapter and notice how he responded. And um, in chapter, chapter 2, probably beginning with verse 47, and this is what he told Daniel. He says, Truly your God is the God of gods, the Lord of lords, and a revealer of secrets or mysteries, as the uh, uh, Septuagint says, since you could reveal this secret or this mystery. And then he promoted Daniel. But he was convinced of, the, of, the, of God, about God, that he was greater than he was. And uh, then we, we move to chapter 3. Here, there's a period probably about 18 years. The Septuagint says it was 18 years. There's some internal evidence also. In chapter, I mentioned chapter 3, chapter 1, these young fellows were called children. And this would have taken uh, teenage years. I'd say 15 or 16 years of, of age. And then in chapter 3, they're called youth or young men. 
And so there's a period of time that went, went by, and I believe the Septuagint is correct, about, about 18 years. So this would put them in the 30-year bracket. You remember, do you know, remember how old uh, Jones and Wagner were? They were in their 30s when they began. So about the same, same age, same thing going on. And, uh, but and in chapter 3, you have the incident of them being thrown into the fire. Uh, Dan, and this gives us a picture of, uh, of the evangelism of uh, the Babylonians. And they sneaked up on them, or they tried to sneak up on them. And it wasn't just the three Hebrews that did not kneel down and bow down to that idol. There were fellows that were watching them. They weren't worshiping either. And so when they saw that they were not worshiping that idol, they ran to Nebuchadnezzar and said, you made that idol and you commanded everyone to worship it. But these Hebrews are not doing it. And these Hebrews were close to Nebuchadnezzar. He was probably in his council in the palace. So he knew them personally, but he got mad because they did not follow along with the law, the decree that he had made. And so in verse 13, it says, Nebuchadnezzar in rage and fury gave the command to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They brought these three, these three men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar spoke, saying to them, it is, true, it, is a, it is a true Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the gold image which I have set up. Then he gave him a second chance. This is, this is unusual. He says, if you're ready at the time you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the harp, the lyre, and the psaltery, in sympathy with all kinds of music, um, and you fall down and worship the image which I have made good. But if you do not worship, you shall be cast immediately into the midst of the fiery furnace. And who is that God who will deliver you from my hands? So this was a direct offense toward God. And these three men answered, verse 16, they said, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If that is the case, our God whom we serve will deliver us from the burning fire furnace, and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the, God, the golden image that you set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was full of fury, and his countenance, of course, changed, and he, he commanded that the fire be be um, hit, uh, heated seven times more. You know, if he wanted to really have these men suffer, he should have lowered the fire instead of build it up, because they would have suffered tremendously. But he it was so hot that even the strongest men in Babylon, soldiers were burned to a crisp as soon as they got close to the fire. And then we see Christ walking in the midst of the fire. And these three men were not touched at all. I think they said later they couldn't even smell the smoke on their, on their clothes. The only thing that burned was the ropes around their hands and feet. But this is an issue of liberty of conscience. And the principles apply to our day. And liberty of conscience is an unpalatable doctrine and experience in most of the world today. Um, justification by faith will be an unpalatable 
gullible doctrine before the coming of Christ. W. W. Prescott had an interesting part of a sermon in the um, General Conference Bulletin of 1893. He said this, the time will soon be here when it will be practically as unpalatable a truth to tell them, he's talking about Christians, that there is life and salvation only in Jesus Christ. To tell them that they do not know anything about justification by faith. And how shall we tell it unless we know the truth concerning it? The commandments of God and the faith of Jesus will be equally unpalatable to teach in every nation. Perhaps some have thought we have now a, we found a doctrine upon which we shall have clear sailing and that we can always preach justification by faith and people will agree with us. It is not so. That is to say, it is not so if the genuine Protestant doctrine of justification by faith is preached, not the papal doctrine of justification by faith, and it will be received as a favorable message, just as we can preach the papal doctrine of the Sabbath, and it will be received. But if the Protestant, the true Christian doctrine of the Sabbath is taught, and likewise, if the true Christian doctrine of justification by faith is taught, the time is near at hand when one will be just as unpalatable as the other, and both will meet with the same opposition. And yet we are taught that we have a message that we are not to cringe to declare, and we are not to beg the pardon of the people for telling the truth. That's pretty strong language. But this is the way he taught and, and believed. And I want to share something with you with a, a pastor that I worked with, not an Adventist. He's called a Berean pastor. and. Uh, he, uh, we'd, we'd studied together on other topics, and one day he came to me and he said, Jerry, I want you to study with me on justification by faith. We had never talked about it up until that point in time. And I said, I'll be glad to. And when I got through, his eyes got big. And he said, but, but, but your people are a bunch of legalists. <laughs> and I said, yes, and at that time, I said, we were having a problem with that. And I paused and I looked at him and I said, that's one of your biggest problems, too. Your people are legalists. And he got a faraway look in his eye, and he said, that's right. And I said, my biggest problem is that I'm a legalist by nature. If I could go to heaven on my own merits, I would love to do it. But I cannot. I must depend on a righteousness and merits outside of myself. And I said, that's your biggest problem, too. You're a legalist by nature. And again, he got that faraway look in his eye. He said, yeah, that's right. And I said, that's why we need to be concentrating always on justification by faith, especially in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he agreed with that. Now, continuing. This is, this is uh, by Luther, and uh, talking about doctrine. This, jo uh, this doctrine of justification by faith, by which we attack the followers of the papacy. Huss and Wycliffe only attacked their lives, but in attacking their doctrine, we take the goose by the neck. He could see clearly what the issues were. From Wycliffe on, and probably even before that, they were trying to reform the church, and it didn't work. And Luther saw what the issue was, was on salvation, especially on justification by faith. And that's, that it caused the ire of the papacy to, to come after him. Now, we need to remember this, that doctrine is not a bad word. It has been given a bad rap, especially a negative reputation, that's what it means. 
the phrase rap sheet is a criminal record. Thus, a bad rap is an unflattering list of perceived crimes or misdeeds. And some attach uh, this to the Sabbath or to, the, to uh, justification by faith. But I want to use a, an illustration here of doctrine. If we could compare doctrine to a skeletal frame, uh, what, is, what does the skeleton do? If it's clothed with, <laughs> with muscle and blood and bone, or blood and uh, skin. Uh, it's, it's a structure. It keeps, it keeps the person upright, or if you're sitting down, anyhow, it, it uh, forms the person. So that an experience then can cover the doctrine. But we need both. Uh, if it's a doctrine that's separated from Christ, it's a disaster. Uh, how would you like to hug a skeleton? <laughs> Not very well, but if you've got some skin on it, then it makes a difference. But if you have only an experience without the skeletal framework, then it's just a glob like jello on the floor. There's no, there's no substance to it. So we need both. We need both doctrine and we need the experience. And I want to illustrate again the doctrine of the Sabbath. It has to be in Christ, connected with Him. Uh, <clears throat> in Christ we find rest. He said, come unto me all you who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Acts chapter 3 talks about the blessings of forgiveness and salvation. Chapter 17 of John says, Christ says, I sanctify myself. And then chapter, I think it's verse, verse 17, says that um, he sanctifies us through his truth. And then holiness. Peter quotes God and he says, be holy for I am holy. The Sabbath teaches us and points us to Jesus Christ. God rested on the Sabbath day. It points to the rest that we find in Christ alone. He blessed the Sabbath, so we see the blessings. We receive the blessings of Christ. He sanctified the Sabbath, so we find sanctification in Christ. And the holiness of the Sabbath points to the holiness that we find in Jesus Christ. The first time that I gave this study to a uh, lady, she had been um, disfellowshipped for, from her church. Uh, she belonged to a church where it was not permitted for women to cut their hair. And she decided to cut her hair. And she was thrown out. And she thought she was lost. And uh, I don't remember how I met her uh, through a friend. And uh, we had Bible studies in, in a Adventist home. And she was coming along fine. Well, the, she wanted to know more about the, right, the long hair. And I said, well, did you look, read the context of what Paul was saying about this? And she said, no. So we. We read that, and Paul said, and I have no, uh, no he said, I, I, I have nothing to urge on this. You're leaving people with the, with the uh, idea of choice. And that just seemed to lift her spirits. It got to the time of the giving of the Sabbath, and I gave this to her, and I put Christ on the one side as I've got it here. And she began, or then I filled it in with the Sabbath. And at that time, I just had a chalkboard, and I was using, that was before computers. <laughs> had the chalkboard putting it down and she began to weep and I panicked I thought oh no I've deceived her <laughs> that I set a trap and sprung it on her and so I, I, I was bothered by that all week 
And uh, she came back this, that next week. And I didn't have the courage to ask her what had happened. So I put it off another week. I thought, well, maybe she comes back next week, I'll ask her. She did, she came back. And I said, uh, what happened uh, uh, when uh, we were studying about the Sabbath? She says, I was so overwhelmed with the beauty of the Sabbath as it is in Christ. Now some, um, who was it this morning that spoke about the, the Sabbath as, uh, oh, Bill, Bill Brace, I think, wasn't it? About uh, Isaiah 58, receive Christ in the Sabbath, that's where the blessing comes. And she saw that, and eventually she became a Seventh-day Adventist. And I had a friend of mine, we, we used to call this the uh, redemptive, redemptive Sabbath. We were canvassing together, and um, he, he met some uh, college students. There, was a, there were four, four colleges in this uh, city of all a single denomination. And this one group of young people said, would you come to our school and give us a Bible study on this? And he said, sure. And he went into a room and it was packed with students and also with nearly all the faculty. <laughs> But it didn't deter him. He simply laid out the Sabbath along these lines. And when he got through, every scholar in that seminary got up, didn't say a word, and walked out, out the door. There was no argument they could bring against it. And my friend was not trying to argue with him. He was trying to win them. But these men knew that they didn't stand a chance with that kind of an argument. And uh, so it, it's, it's been a blessing to me and to others also. But I want to say that the Sabbath can be a doctrine if it's separated from Christ. But if it's in Christ, it is more than a doctrine. It becomes an experience in Christ. Luther said justification by faith and liberty of conscience go together. He said that liberty of conscience is the most important part of faith. This is what he had to say. Let there be no compulsion. I have been laboring for liberty of conscience. Liberty is the very essence of faith. And Ellen White quoted Luther four times, or speaking from Daubigny, and these are the references, 1883, Signs of the Times, Volume 4 of the Spirit of Prophecy, 1884, Great Controversy, both 88 and 1911. She's quoting that passage four different times. I want to look at the unintended consequence of justification by faith. The Protestant Reformation teaching of justification by faith led to these unintended consequences. Liberty of conscience, priesthood of all believers, separation of church and state, and it, the Dutch Republic was built on this. Most, most of the persecuted people from France and from Germany fled to Northern Holland where they had liberty of conscience. And the Dutch Republic became a one of the greatest seafaring nations in the world at that time for a period of time. And then they turned back from some of the things they learned. This was then crossed the waters to the United States of America. And these were the concepts that, that uh, built this nation, including justification by faith. The, the, the Puritans, all these people knew about these things. The Declaration, when it was written, uh, notice the relationship to Ad America and Adventism. The Declaration of Independence. By the way, I'm going to put a footnote here. 
most history that's being written today about the Declaration of Independence and about the American Republic is bad history. They're claiming that it's been re rewritten, but one of the issues in 1776, even before that time, was freedom for the slaves. It was put into the Constitution, but it was voted out before it came in this, in this uh, form. But the Declaration of Independence was made, and then the Constitution, 1789, 1791, the Bill of Rights, this prepared the way for the three, three angels' message. The three angels' message could never have gone in any other nation. But because of the freedoms that were had here, and there were people who were trying to make this a Christian nation, but it was, it was not so. Uh, and they, they, de they determined to keep the separation of church and state. Some of the leaders, there were religious leaders that were trying to uh, cover this up, but they couldn't, couldn't get it done. But anyhow, coming back to Nebuchadnezzar, he learned the lesson of liberty of conscience when he experienced justification by faith. And so we have, again, the three steps. He was impressed in chapter one, convinced in chapter two, convicted in chapter three, but not converted until chapter four. And in that, we talked about the tree that he saw in the trump that, uh, um, the trunk that was banded, and um, then he, um, he he was justified. And I think several times the question is asked, what is justification by faith? One of the greatest examples is that of Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar had his glory laid in the dust. He could not do anything for himself. God justified. He did something for him that he could not do for himself. And this, this has been repeated several times. It is the work of God in laying the glory of man in the dust and doing for man that which is not in his power uh, to do for himself. When men see their own nothingness, they are prepared to be clothed with the righteousness of Christ. When they begin to praise and exalt God all the day long, then by beholding they are becoming changed into the same image. By the way, this is a letter written to a doctor and his wife. Dr. Maxson, and um, they were health reformers, but they were not health reformers. <laughs> but if you want to read the entire article, it is fantastic. And uh, he said, you're trying to make reform from the outside inward. He said, it must come from inside outwardly. And uh, whether they changed or not, I, I don't know that. But in chapter four of Daniel, King Nebuchadnezzar's testimony of having his glory laid in the dust than having God do for him that which it was impossible for him to do for himself. And this is what the king said to him before the before disaster hit. He, he talked about Daniel, that the Spirit of God was in him. He said, I know the Spirit of the Holy God is in you, verse 9. You are able to reveal the dream to me, for the Spirit of the Holy God is in you. He knew the Spirit of God was in Daniel. Here's kind of an envelope construction. In verse 8, the Spirit of God was there. Verse 18, he was there. In between, Nebuchadnezzar told his dream, and he went insane for seven times, seven years. And it wasn't until he learned that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and in his own life. And so he was converted. He was justified. 
And I would say that the work of the Holy Spirit, as well as Christ and the Father, were all involved in that. And I want to go into this now, the Godhead and justification. Uh, if one person of the Godhead is involved in any kind of work or project, the other two are likewise involved in that same work. We have in creation, verse 2 of chapter 1, the Holy Spirit was moving upon the waters and the chaos. He was bringing it together. Verses 26 and 27, God, let, God said to God, let us make man in our own image. And we know that Christ is the one who, who did the actual creating. But I believe the Father and he were there together with the Holy Spirit. And also in justification, or, or I should say in re redemption, they're all three involved in that. And especially justification. In Romans 8.33 speaks of the Father. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. The next verse talks about Jesus. So there, it talks about two entities here. Romans 5.9 says Christ of Christ. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. And then we have 1 Corinthians 6.11 concerning the Holy Spirit. It says such were some of you. It lists the whole uh, catalog of sins. Such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord and by the Spirit of God. So the Holy Spirit is involved in justification as well as the Father and the Son. And it's, the, the wording is this way. You were justified by the Spirit of our God. Uh, if you have any uh, Greek, you can look that up. It simply says the Spirit, the God, the Spirit, our God, of of the Spirit, who is our God. The Spirit is in the dative case and is used to denote the purpose, the means, the agency of the action of the verb, you were justified. So the Holy Spirit is actively involved in our justification. He brings the righteousness of Christ into us, into our minds, and changes us. Now, Christ also, now, all three are mentioned in the book of Daniel. Every chapter of Daniel speaks about Christ. Chapter 7 talks about the Ancient of Days, a couple of places. Chapter 8 also. But in chapter 1, you have Christ as the Lord who handed his people over to Babylon. And Habakkuk, about 20 years before this, he said, I can't understand this, God. Why are you doing this? Those people are more wicked than your people. Why are you doing it? <laughs> he was puzzled. But God told him that because the Jews had more of an understanding of God's ways, they were held more responsible from the, for the pagans who didn't. So they were handed over to him. In chapter 2, as we saw read earlier, he's the revealer of secrets. And uh, chapter 3, he's the son of God walking in the midst of the fire with his people. Chapter 4, he's the one who justified um, Nebuchadnezzar. Chapter five, 5, he comes as judge with uh, Belshazzar, grandson of Nebuchadnezzar. Chapter 6, he's pictured as God delivering Daniel from the lion's den and his angel. In chapter 7, he is the son of man who comes to the ancient of days. Then in chapter 8, he's called Balmoni. Now you won't see that right on there, but if you read verse 13, it says, a holy one said to that holy one, that and that second one, the holy man, holy one is the word Palmoni, and in the marginal uh, marginal references of the old King James Version. I don't know if it's still there or not. 
but they, had, they said he's a re revealer of secrets um, or the wonderful numberer. It was Jesus Christ who gave the 2300-year prophecy. That is the testimony of Christ. And that word palmoni uh, is related to uh, Isaiah, where it says, um, unto you a son is born, the everlasting father. Wonderful, that word wonderful is related to this one. Here it's called the wonderful number. There it's uh, in a different context. Chapter nine, he's the prince, Messiah the prince who was crucified for us, not for himself, but for us. Chapter 10, he's a prince. They were having problems with the leadership of uh, Persia. And Michael, Christ came as Michael the prince to do battle with the devil and uh, won. And then you have um, chapter 10, uh, chapter 11, he's called the prince of the covenant that was broken. This is under Tiberius, this is the central point in chapter 11. I hear all kinds of things today on uh, who the king of the north is and who the king of the south is. And they're forbidding that Christ is the center of the chapter. Not only, uh, not only uh, the theme, but also in the middle of the chapter, verse 22. <laughs> Christ is the theme of chapter 11. And uh, he's in charge. Then chapter 12, he is the prince again. Michael the prince who stands for his people. And that's for you and me as he finishes his work in the Holy of Holies. So our justification is the work of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Here's something from Spirit of Prophecy, Amazing Grace 190. The Godhead was stirred with pity for the race. And the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit gave themselves to the working out of the plan of redemption. Okay. Justification by faith is practical. Some say, oh, it's a theory. No, it's practical. Chapter, four, chapter 5 of Romans. He sets forth the practical aspect of justification by faith on a day-by-day -day basis. And here are some of the features. Number one, peace with God. Second, access into grace by which we stand before God. Rejoice in hope in the glory of God. We glory in tribulations. Tribulations lead to patience, per perseverance, experience and character and hope and no shame, no uh, disappointment because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who is given to us. So these are all practical features of justification by faith. There's nothing that can be more practical than this, which is the personal forgiveness of sins. It is extremely Practical. And here's a letter, the letter experience in justification by faith. Number one, the justified life. We glory in tribulations. Tribulation leads to perseverance. Perseverance to character. Character to hope. Hope does not make, uh, or does not disappoint us, but the love of God, the agape, is shed abroad in our hearts. That's the experience of justification by faith on a practical level. Now, we began our study with uh, this verse. Oh, no, I didn't read it. I actually took it out. <laughs> and I knew we were going to come to it. Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. This is from A.T. Jones. He made a comment on this. Being is a present tense. Therefore, the Lord says to you and of you who believe in Jesus being now at this moment justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. 
And that verse now which goes, uh, goes back to verse 21. It says, now the righteousness of God is revealed. So he's combining the two of them in that article. But uh, it's in Christ Jesus through the forbearance of God. And you find that in the present truth, in uh, the English present truth, January 21, 1897, and the Review and Herald, February 21, 1899. And there are other ones too. Now this is the one, now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that believe, for there's no difference. The moment the sinner believes in Christ, this is Jones, he stands in this, oh no, this is Ellen White, stands in the sight of God uncondemned, for the righteousness of Christ is his, Christ's perfect obedience is imputed to him. Now, not only is it a present tense, it is also a participle. The participle means it keeps going, especially if it's uh, connected with a present uh, verb. Justification by faith is not a one-time event. I've listened to preachers, uh, I don't think I've listened to any Adventists about it, but I've listened to some preachers saying that it's a one-time event. Once you're justified, you can never be lost. But it, uh, but it does not continue. It's simply an act that happened when you said by faith. But it's not a one-time event. It's continuous so long as God's grace is received and cherished along with faith in Christ that's continually exercised. We are being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Being justified is a present participle which means continuous action. So something like this. Justification continues. It does not stop. It does not increase. It does not decrease. But it continues on through the life experience of the individual. And I, last year I presented this uh, diagram, a couple of diagrams that I used to uh, illustrate it this way, that the faith of Jesus at the cross and believing in Christ, we are both justified and sanctified. And, but I, the point that I wanted to show was that justification covers sanctification. It comes first and it covers our sanctification. Then I used an umbrella to show it that uh, sanctification always comes under the umbrella of uh, justification. And then on this one, um, well, the uh, justification prepares the way for sanctification. It's the gate into it. We're justified, then our sanctification will inward and outwardly uh, begin and they are gradually to grow up into all things into Christ Jesus. Ephesians 4.15. And this is the one I, I think I like the best of all of these, that we need to remember that sanctification, sh it's got to be an upward uh, direction. Uh, it's not flat, and it can't be down, but it is up and down. And because it's up and down, we need to be covered by that, and that's through the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Ellen White says that the character is revealed not by occasional good deeds and occasional misdeeds, but by the tendency of the habitual works and acts. These are based on faith. So uh, justification, you heard this, and justification is our title to heaven. Sanctification is our fitness for it. I want to show you a, a uh, oh my, what, what, uh, what, 1351, what time is it? How much time do I have? <laughs> oh, I, I guess I got my clock here. I can look, I've got ten, about 10 minutes, I guess. Okay, less. All right. Um, 
in the, uh, I was in a class in college. I actually dropped out of the class because of this diagram. Uh, it was in the book, and then the, the teacher was drawing it on a chalkboard. And this is what he had to say, that, that uh, sanctification is our fitness for heaven. And he put, you know, the ups and downs of sanctification. But then he said justification reaches to where sanctification is. So that as you grow in sanctification, you need less justification. And went all the way up, and I, I thought, and I said, hey, he's got a fitness for heaven, but no title to get in. <laughs> and I dropped the class. I don't think he liked it, but I didn't like what he was saying. And this is what I believe, that justification not only covers sanctification, it must cover our pre-conversion experience of life and sin. We must be covered our entire life. And uh, this uh, concept again of, of the uh, uh, justification and sanctification, I believe it's the light that comes from the second apartment of the sanctuary in heaven. The power of God's gospel, gospel was placed within Nebuchadnezzar. His mind was restored to him when he let the mind of Christ rule him. We've already read this and others have said it again, but it's good to keep track of. Justification is the work of God in laying the glory of man unto us. This is what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. And then doing for Nebuchadnezzar that which was not in his power to do for himself. And that includes every one of us. If you haven't experienced it yet, you will if you'll continue to respond to Christ. The gospel was then proclaimed in the greatest kingdom of the world at that time. But his attitude had entirely changed. Chapter 4 is his public proclamation. It was written down in the government files. And it looks like Daniel just took it out of the files and put it in his book. But he acknowledged God's mercy, his goodness, and his authority. And this is the last act of life that's recorded in sacred history about Nebuchadnezzar. And I also want to publicly testify to God's mercy and goodness and authority. As some of you knew, or know, I went into surgery April 7, about three months ago. And um, is, that, is that about it? Huh? Okay. <laughs> um, the doctor told me that it would I'd be four to six months before I would recover. And I made a goal that I would be here. <laughs> this is three months. Now, I could not speak, or I could barely speak last Sunday. Last week, I was sure I would not have the physical strength to stand up here. But by God's grace, I'm here. Even if I pass out now. <laughs> I made the three months. It'll probably take some more. <laughs> but uh, here's a picture. Some of you know what uh, this is. It's a ventilator. I was on this thing three times within about three days. And that's the reason I can't speak very well. <laughs> but it, it is improving. Uh, we had, we had uh, after I got out of the hospital, we had uh, people coming to the house for two months. And one, one girl was, uh, well, she, she was an occupational therapist. But she said something one day, because I was not speaking hardly at all. And she said, something that will help with your voice is that is to sing or to hum. So Shirley and I have been singing and hum or humming every day. Actually, we were humming coming to church. 
<laughs> because I didn't know whether it was going to work out or not. But anyhow, uh, this, uh, the principal function of a ventilator, ventilator is to put oxygen-rich air into the lungs and then to assist the lungs, the removal of carbon dioxide from the lungs. And, uh, and then we have this. I had two of these after, I think, now I had, I had uh, a minor operation, and, uh, but disaster hit later. And uh, so after this, I had pneumonia, I went into shock, everything, I was dead for all intents and purposes. But anyhow, someone, someone had the wise, wise idea that I had the, the uh, virus. And so they stuck this thing up my nose and twirled it around and then sent it in, came back and didn't have it. But someone said, well, we've got to do it again because we can't tell. So they did it a second time. It came back the same. And then uh, they want to do it a third time. And there was a young doctor who said, no, <laughs> let him alone. <laughs> he doesn't have it. And so they took me out. I was, I was down in the basement uh, in the COVID-19 uh, group and uh, in, in uh, isolation. And they put me up on the third floor up. Uh, here's, here's another one that shows what, how, how it works. Not a happy experience. But the second time, I don't remember anything about it. it very little the first time. But, uh, but anyhow, this is something happened that uh, <coughs> I was bleeding internally. My blood on the inside was building up. And no, they didn't know what was the matter. They knew that, they knew that um, the blood was going somewhere. They didn't know where it was to start with. So they started pumping more blood into me. And uh, I was awake when they were doing some of this. And then uh, I remember my lungs or my breathing, I could not, I could not breathe. And uh, to start with, I could, even when I felt the blood up against my lung. Uh, then I was taking half breaths. And then finally I was gasping and really gasping. And I, and I was thinking to myself, I don't want to go out this way. And I was thinking of dying. <laughs> I don't want to go this way. But there wasn't much I could do about it. Then, now I don't know the chronological uh, points here, but somewhere along the line, I had a, I don't know what it was, I've never, I've never, never had anything like this before, but I had like on the lower third of a, of a TV screen or, or computer, sometimes you get messages, I saw something that looked like a, br a brain that was breaking up or a world just shattering, going, going apart. And then I saw coming through that mess, a message that said, you will not make it through this. Then there was another message on the other side, <laughs> a beautiful blue uh, picture of you're going to come through this. And then, and I don't know whether it was from memory or if I saw this or not, I don't know. But this psalm came to my mind, 103 verses 2 and 3, fantastic. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquities and heals all your diseases. Then chapter 103, uh, 118 verses 18 and 17, I've got them reversed here on purpose. The Lord has not given me over to death. This is David speaking. I shall not die, but live and declare the works of the Lord. And I was at peace. I'd already talked to God about it. I, I thought I was going to die. And uh, 
I had no idea. I blacked out. That was it. But every time that we met a crisis after that, I said, God, I believe you're going to bring me through this. <laughs> and he did every single time. And I woke up that next morning and I saw a, tele a TV screen on the wall and, uh, and a clock. And I looked at them, looked around a little bit, and then it dawned on me I was alive. <laughs> I said, I'm alive! <laughs> I didn't die last night. <laughs> and so uh, they took some stuff out of me. And uh, I remember there were a couple of men, nurses, and uh, I tell you, I had, I think, almost every orifice in my body was plugged with something. <laughs> and my arms were full of uh, all kinds of things. And they started plucking them all out. And, uh, and he, t he pulled out from my nose uh, a tube about three foot long, <laughs> went from my nose down, nose down into my stomach. You know, so, so I actually I took a picture and I didn't, I didn't put it on here. But then came out, I was in there about two weeks. By the way, I lost uh, between 25 and 30 pounds in two weeks' time. Now, I wouldn't advertise that program, <laughs> but I'm glad I lost the pounds. But anyhow, um, during the, that second week, uh, there were people, well, they knew that Shirley and Dr. Don and Esther were trying to get me out of the hospital to go home. And, uh, and so uh, the doctor, the surgeon came to me this one day and he said, uh, we, can either send, we, we, we can send you into rehab or a rest home. Or he said, we can send you home. And there were people in the hospital who did not want me to come home. They wanted me to go to this other place. But I knew if I went to one of them, I wasn't going to make it. And they would send me back to the hospital. So, so I told him, I said, well, I want to go home. And he said, well, we're going to take a leap of faith and send you home. And so I went home. I could not walk. I could not talk. And I couldn't feed myself. Surely had to feed me. And little by little, I finally took the spoon out of her hand. <laughs> and I was able to feed myself. I could not walk to the kitchen table to begin with, but little by little I was able to. And so, I know every, every person that came to the room while I was in the hospital and those workers that came to our home, I would ask a simple question, could I share with you what I went through? And everyone said yes. Everyone were positive about it except one young doctor. He said, well, there was a, bunch of do a number of doctors working over you. And I said, I thank God for every one of you. <laughs> I didn't want to push that one anymore. But uh, the, one of the nurses told me, she said, I just, I read your chart. And she said, it's amazing. She said, you were the subject of the entire morning <laughs> at staff meeting. And uh, uh, some did not think I was going to make it. I think Shirley may have, and I, th I believed I would. And uh, not because of me, but because I believed God was in charge of this whole mess. And he's going, he's going to restore it. If there's anyone that does not believe, believe <laughs> by God's grace. And uh, there's nothing he cannot do. I went, we gave books out, everyone that came to the house. We had one man from India, Hindu, wonderful man. And I didn't know what to, I, I knew I couldn't give him anything about uh, Christ. But I shared with him a great controversy. I said, now this is directed at, at Christians, but it's dealing with liberty of conscience, and you will be affected as well as Muslims <laughs> in this controversy. He said, I will read it, 
but he's working on his PhD right now and he said, you know, he couldn't right now, but he said, I will read it. And I believe the man, and I believe he's gonna be in the kingdom. With that, I better close. <laughs> thank you for your patience. Gracious Father, thank you so very much for your goodness to us, your mercies that are fresh and new every single day. Thank you personally for the strength you've given me today. And although, although the voice has been wobbly, I believe you've strengthened that to a degree also that you want, and I thank you for it. Be with each of us as we go to our various homes after this weekend. May Christ be continually uplifted and glorified in our lives and in our teachings. In his name, amen, amen.